Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the novelist and critic Chloe Ashby, whose new book is a its a different look at the history of art from prehistoric times to the modern day, and it's called Colours of Art, the story of art in 80 palettes. Chloe, welcome. Hi, thank you, Sam. What was it that made you think that looking at the history of art through colour was going to have productive things to to say and to discover? Is it something that's been done before? Is it something that sort of popped into your head? What's the project? So, I mean, there are so many different lenses through which you can look at art, which is helpful because sometimes when you stand in front of an artwork, it can be quite paralysing, I think, when you don't know where to begin, you don't know where to start. This book actually, so to tell the the total truth about the book's beginnings, It started because I wrote another art book and was having conversations with an editor off the back of that one. The previous book I wrote was called Look at This If You Love Great Art and it was a survey of a hundred artworks that I think are worthy of discussion. So very subjective, kind of opening myself up to um, (laughs) differences of opinion, which is great. But this one, this editor had... She wanted to do something to do with colour. She asked me what I thought, how I would approach it. And I think for me, you know, colour is one of those things. It is so readily available to us, especially today. We can get hold of any colour we want in, you know, the click of fingers. And like most things that are readily available to us, we kind of take it for granted. So I really liked the idea of writing a book that focused on colour and art and also therefore in a way would perhaps encourage readers to take note of colour and appreciate colour more in day-to-day life. I have this really vivid memory. This is slightly going off on a tangent, sorry Sam. No, tangents away. (laughs) Love tangents, yes. Good. (laughs) But I have this memory of when I was a child and actually I think it was sort of multiple memories happened multiple times of lying in bed in the dark, maybe not the total dark because the door could have been open a crack or something, but having my eyes closed, trying to go to sleep and seeing flashes of colours on the undersides of my lids and thinking, wow, that's incredible. And also that's very annoying because I'm trying to sleep. But that's just one tiny, (laughs) tiny example of, you know, we can't escape colour. So I guess, I don't know if I've answered your question there, but it's so ubiquitous. And yeah, I kind of jumped at the chance, to be honest. And obviously, you've presumably at some point gone through a mental or even a sort of physical catalogue of the paintings you like, the paintings you're interested in, the paintings you think are important, and sort of started to look at them specifically through the lens of colour. Did that sort of shift something in the way that you were perceiving the shape of, if you like, your understanding of the history of art or your understanding of the relationship between periods in art or artists? It did. When it came to the artworks, there so there are 80 artworks in this book. The book is vaguely structured by these kind of crucial moments in the history of colour and art. They became my chapters. And then within those chapters, there are these case studies on particular paintings. And some of those works kind of fell straight out of my head and onto the page and I they were old favourites and I wanted to include them. And the fact is, 
I kind of had free reign because you can apply the lens of colour to any artwork. And that was one thing that sort of came later was this idea of including works that you would look at and not think about colour at all. So, for example, Agnes Martin's seemingly blank canvases, which, you know, from far away just look like white squares on a wall. And then you get up close and you realise there are these really intricately sort of delicately done grids overlaid with thin layers of paint or or you think about Frank Stella's The Marriage of Reason and Squalor which is this monochromatic vast black rectangle you know no I think very few people would stand in front of that and think of colour but what I kind of wanted to do with the book was think about these surprising examples as well as these works that immediately might spring to mind like Monk's The Scream which is one of the kind of most celebrated works because of colour, I think, in the history of art. Yeah. Now, one of the things very early on in the book that surprised me was you said we, we had paint before we had painting. Yes, yeah. So it goes back, I think it's 100,000 years. I'm paraphrasing. So. <laughs> no, no, but you're absolutely right. There is a cave in South Africa and it is called the Blombos Cave. And... There was a discovery of a paint workshop there and there were lumps of ochre, which is um, a sort of yellowish pigment. And there were grinding stones and these shell containers, but zero art on the walls, which suggests that pigments were being used as face and body paint before they were being used to draw. So, yeah, that sort of stretches back an incredibly long way. And then... And then we skip forward. I mean, I, I begin in the book with prehistoric and ancient works and just to sort of lay those foundations. And then I skip forward fairly quickly to the Renaissance, which is, in my opinion, one of the biggest kind of turning points and crucial moments in the history of colour. When you're talking about... I mean, I, I suppose it's, it's sort of that jump between the prehistoric and the Renaissance. There's a sense in which part of your story is the way in which the palette changed or the available palette, the available number of colours mm. changed through history. Mm-hmm. Sort of how did it start off and what, you know, how did scarcity, which we, you know, we're in a sort of post-scarcity world as regards colour, but how did scarcity in history sort of shape not just the sorts of paintings being made, but the kind of meanings of those paintings? Mm. So that's something that, so if we kind of continue thinking about the Renaissance, for example... At this point, I mean, it was a period where colour was used so meaningfully and so carefully, and that was largely down to the cost and availability of colour. So you think about a colour like ultramarine, which is this brilliantly saturated blue, and because it was so prohibitively expensive, it was reserved for kind of the most special significant subjects above all the virgin's robes. I was going to say, that's the one thing about colour symbolism everyone knows, is <laughs> the virgin's robes are blue. Yes, exactly. Except for, there's, there is one painting in the book by van der Weyden, which shows the virgin in green. So she wasn't always in blue, but I think she often was. And the same with the pigment like gold, which was seen as kind of, well, it was a very pure and stable pigment and it was kind of used for any any sort of heavenly scene. So... I think it's interesting to think about whether, you know, because now artists have access to to every colour, as I said earlier, 
does that then mean that colour is used less meaningfully, that colour is a less vital tool? And I, and I think the answer is probably no, that it is just as vital. It's just that artists aren't governed by the same rules. It's kind of a free-for-all these days. And that goes for colour and for mediums, materials. And was there a sense in the Renaissance and up to the early modern period that there were kind of rules about colour, I mean, beyond the gold being a colour associated with sanctity and blue being associated with the Virgin? I mean, was there a sort of colour code? You know, were they using colour in a very strictly, narrowly symbolic way? They were. There was also a big debate at the time, which started in, I think it was 16th century Italy, which was surrounding drawing versus colour. So there was one school of thought that was very much um, supporting the idea that colour should be used very distinctly and there should be defined edges and it should all be very sharp and very clean. And you think of an artist like Michelangelo and the forms are very clearly defined versus artists who it was more about blending and blurring paints and there was a slightly more romantic quality to it. And an example there could be Titian. You say Titian used his thumb. <laughs> yes, he did. He did, yeah. And, and created these kind of amazingly fleshly textures. And th- those debates continued all the way till 19th century France when in the academy, it, you know, it was all about drawing versus a romantic artist who, I don't know, were just free of spirits perhaps um, in everything, not just in colour. <laughs> but so how's that remain that that sort of divide is that is that something we can trace all the way through that that you know do you compose through if you like making the shapes and then filling them in or is the composition led by color I think probably there is still a divide today you know as part of my kind of more journalistic work I interview lots of contemporary artists and some have a very free and kind of spontaneous process where they start off sketching their composition onto the onto a canvas with really watered down acrylic for example whereas others others will sketch and sketch and produce these preparatory drawings and then also continue to draw before they paint so I think it still happens but I think um you know it used to be a really contentious issue and now I think it's just accepted that there are multiple ways to approach painting since painting is what we're talking about here. I mean, that's another thing. The book, in the book, I do focus on painting, but of course you could talk about the history of colour in art across all mediums. But yes, I needed to narrow it down somehow. It's quite a big, sprawling subject. (laughs) I'm interested you said that you draw a distinction between the sort of classical and romantic in a way, the the Academy versus the Mm. more romantic, impressionistic kind of movements. There does seem to be a little theme that comes through in the idea of colour as being associated with the subliminal and the irrational rather than the kind of basic reason. I mean, I think you, you know, one of the watersheds in the book, of course, is Newton discovering, you know, what colour is mm-hmm. made of. And there's a kind of reaction against him, isn't there, from various painters from, well, Goethe's not a painter, but, you know, theorists, if you like, from Goethe to, up to Gauguin, saying, I don't like this. Reason is not the way to understand colour. Yes. Can you... Kind of expand on that a little and how that's that's played out. Yes. So Newton, for anyone who doesn't know, discovered the colour spectrum in 1666. 
So he passed a beam of apparently colourless daylight, or you could call it white light, through a glass prism, and he witnessed that beam of light separate into distinct coloured rays, and therefore proved that all colour is contained within light. So he identified seven essential hues, and his approach was very mathematical, very scientific, you know, one of his failings was that he didn't recognise that colour could be a subjective experience as well as a scientific measurement. For example, that artist materials blend differently to light. So later theorists who who looked into the subject off the back of his discovery, and Goethe is one of them, described a more subjective and human experience of colour perception. So thought about colour in shadow, colour as it passes through different mediums like air or dust. So yes, it's sort of the very mathematical scientific mind versus the slight, like you say, the slightly more um, kind of human side of things. Will you talk later on in the book about, say, you know, the three elements that go into colour, which I, you know, it was new on me because I'm an ignoramus, but that there's not just the hue, the, the colour colour. Yes. But there's two other aspects to it. Could you explain what they are? Mm. So the other two aspects, so as you said, there's hue, which is the colour family or name. So hue is blue, yellow, red, orange, etc. Then you've got tone, which is how light or dark something is. So I guess you could think of that as a, a particular shade. Think of those... Um, brilliantly named Farrenball Whites, for example. And then you have intensity, (laughs) uh, which denotes the amount of pure colour present. So kind of how bright and how bold something is. Yeah. You know, you said there's this sort of subjective attitude that colour sparks these responses in us. How acculturated do you think they are? I mean, how much... I know there's the famous instance which is the kind of weak Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that says, you know, because Russians can say Sydney and globally, that they actually perceive dark blue and light blue slightly differently. Mm. Is there a sense that our emotional responses to colour through history have been shaped by the way they're used in art or by their place in, you know, day-to-day life? Yes, I think, I think that's probably true. I mean, in terms of colour communication, different cultures, different languages... There are not only different words for colour, but, you know, a different number of words for colour. Some cultures, it's almost paired back to warm colours and dark colours, and there are fewer descriptors in between. There are definitely moments in the history of art when artists were trying to evoke emotion through colour more than they were at other times. And you just look at the kind of expressionist and artist like Monk again. I mean, The Scream is such a good example because you just get swept up in the kind of bold and crazy colours of that canvas and they evoke this moment of kind of terror as, as he was walking across this bridge near his hometown in Oslo. And it's the same for artists like Van Gogh. There's a work in the book, it's actually one of my favourites, it's of two crabs. It's a kind of very simple painting in a way. It hangs in the National Gallery. I'd really recommend, if anyone hasn't seen it, that they go and take a look. It's, it's a very unexpected Van Gogh for you to choose, isn't it? 
a lesser known one. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, and I quite like it for that reason, I think. But it shows these two crabs and they are, they're probably dead. They're possibly cooked because their shells are bright, vivid red. Certainly upside down. <laughs> Certainly upside down. And, and I mean, it's very easy to get a bit tangled when we think about an artist's biography and then their work. And, and of course, with Van Gogh especially, his art is almost, you know, you can't divorce it from the stories we, we know and hear about him in his life. But yes, the, to me, there's so much emotion wrapped up in, in that seemingly simple painting. And I think, I think when you're discussing that painting, you quote Van Gogh saying, which is another, it seems to me, kind of interesting perennial of colour conversations, him saying, you know, there were these complementary colours and I've painted these kind of pinky crabs on a sort of turquoise ground, isn't it? Yeah, bluish green, yes. Is your sense over history that those kind of conversations about what colours are complementary, what colours sort of clash you know, colloquially, and don't clash or set each other off, make each other pop. Has that sort of changed, or are those, are those, if you like, human or, I don't know, maybe even physical universals? I think it's changed. Um, I think it's developed over time. I think it kind of slightly goes back to what I was saying earlier, in that at certain points in history there have been, I don't know if we should call them rules, but definite guidelines about which colours should be used with with which colours, what should sit alongside another. And Van Gogh, you know, with this work, especially, I've now got it in front of me. I just love it. Everyone should go and see this work. But yeah, I think it would have been something that he was definitely thinking about when he was working. And now it's sort of just less prescriptive. I mean, one of my favourite sections in the book almost is the section on monochrome art which presents one colour or, or variations on one colour. And it couldn't be further away from really any of the, any of the work that comes before it, especially when you, when you look back to Impressionism with all the uh, explosion of pigments and explosion of, of different shades. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of sneakily, nearly monochrome art in here as well. I mean, one of the things that seems to come through is that Artists, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, you've got that amazing Whistler portrait where mm. it's basically all pinky orange or there's a later on a study and I can't remember who the artist is. It's a sort of yellow, almost completely yellow with just a face coming out of it. Oh, that's one of my favourites as well, the Kupka. Yes. And that, that there sort of seems to be a sense that quite often artists, are, they're producing something that's ostensibly figurative, but for them, that's not where the action is. You know, they're, they're sort of more interested in the colour fields and so forth. Yeah, and, and that example that you gave of the, the portrait, it's called the yellow scale. It's so interesting to look at this work because it is almost entirely yellow, sort of different shades of yellow. But, I mean, what it means, I don't know, but I, I mention in the book that once you notice that there are these sort of hints of green on the artist's face and on his, because it's a self-portrait, and I think on other sort of tiny little glimpses of flesh that you see. I start to wonder whether he's experiencing some sort of envy at the fact that colour's taking over as the subject, <laughs> which, you know, could be entirely wrong, but is one, one reading that I would offer up. I think that with, with minimalist art, it's, you know, once you have so many options at your fingertips, it's quite a radical and thought-provoking thing to get rid of everything and just focus on one colour. 
you know, it, it seems it seems like the opposite, perhaps. But sorry, go on. I was going to say, as a sort of parenthesis, why is it, do you think, that, you know, this enormous canvas Guernica, and, you know, obviously it's not in your book, but, you know, Picasso's, mm. you know, an extraordinarily responsive artist to colour in general, is, you know, grey. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, Picasso in particular, he he was an artist who went through such phases with colour. The, the work that I do include in the book is um, The Life, which is entirely blue, a work made in his blue period at a time when his close friend had killed himself. He was struggling and he was painting entirely in these very cool, sombre shades. And then later, when uh, things were looking up, those shades kind of started to thaw into these blush roses and pinks and reds, the rose period. So I think, I mean... With Picasso, I think sometimes it's a challenge for an artist to to focus on one colour, especially with a with a shade like grey. It's a challenge, it's something different. But with him though, there's definitely the sense that he enjoyed tethering himself to one colour at a time. And you talk about some artists having I think you saw about Matisse having a love affair with red. Yes, yes. Some artists who have sort of favourite colours. It sounds pretty vulgar to say your favourite colour, but but is that something you could say of artists? I think it's definitely something you could say of him. I forget the quote now, but he he said something like, you know, red is... I'm I'm really paraphrasing here, but red's my favourite colour. I don't know why. He was commissioned to paint this decorative panel for someone, and initially it was painted in blue. It was commissioned to be blue. It was Sergei Shushkin, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. To hang in... um, his mansion and then he just changed it to red he decided it should be red and so he painted over it he actually in fact I think he had handed over the artwork and then he requested it back so did the collector get much say in this (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure it doesn't sound like it I mean I think he he was uh, attracted to Matisse in the first place because he was kind of a peppy artist and he liked what he was about he liked what he stood for so maybe he didn't mind too much but yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing, favourite colours. We are sort of all expected to have one. That's another thing I, I write about in the introduction. I don't know if I do have a favourite colour. Do you have a favourite colour, Sam? It seems to change from day to day, but probably quite often grey, I think. Yeah, it's maybe like, quite like Picasso, perhaps. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm attracted to the grey. <laughs> I'm a very boring person. <laughs> the material history of colour is something that that enters into this, of course, you know, I mean, you know, we all start with the, maybe the, all those bazillions of poor old sea snails that went into Roman cloaks. And, you know, you talk about the scarcity of that very bright blue in the Renaissance. But, I mean, blue being maybe a prime example, there is this kind of year zero moment, isn't there, with blue? Mm. About halfway through the 19th century. So with blue, it's a particularly interesting example because actually the first known artificial pigment was blue and it was created in ancient Egypt and it was made from this semi-precious stone lapis lazuli but then very sadly and unfortunately the recipe was lost in the middle ages. You then fast forward to I think it was 1704 when Prussian blue was invented and it was the first modern synthetic pigment and This was kind of revolutionary, not only because it allowed artists, if you think of Rococo artists like Boucher, it allowed those artists to kind of create these timeless seas and skies, 
but it also it prompted others to make more colours synthetically and to find alternatives to the very many poisonous or prohibitively expensive pigments out there. Yes, you've got a very yikes page on all the artists who may or may not have been killed by their affection for green or yellow or whatever. Yes, yeah, it's quite terrifying when you look into the history of poisonous pigments, not just because there were so many. And actually, I learned a lot when I was researching this. I didn't realise, for example, or maybe I knew and I'd forgotten, but that Monet went blind, Cezanne developed diabetes. There's this artist, this brilliant Amsterdam based artist called Rachel Rush and she made beautiful uh, still lives of flowers floral paintings and she used a toxic pigment called Brialga in a painting called Flowers in a Vase kind of enabled her to obtain this really kind of burnt orange colour that she used in for these fiery lilies she has in the vase you think of lead white for example which was actually one of the earliest poisonous colours and it was in the late 19th century that it was discovered to be poisonous. But then production in the US wasn't banned until something like 19, 1980, which is very recent. Oh, I've got a robust libertarian tradition. Yes, yeah. I don't like the nanny state over there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's just down to the fact that before the advent of modern medicine, the, the quite common threats of these pigments were unknown. No. As you say, they through the years and, you know, by, I guess, the middle of the 19th century or so, you know, we had a full palette of synthetic pigments mm-hmm. and artists could essentially paint anything. How much did the subjectivity, as you talk about it, of colour, how much was it possible for people to, to talk meaningfully to each other about colour in terms of fixing them? I'm really interested in how you say, you know, the problem with colour was it's kind of hard to describe except absolutely scientifically. Mm. You know, when, when did people develop that vocabulary? Because we all know the Pantone chart, but that's kind of quite an extraordinary little vignette from history. Yeah, that came later, sadly, so they didn't have access to that one. I mean, the 19th century, it was the key turning point when there was this explosion of pigments. And... There's an explosion of pigments. There was the invention of the collapsible paint tube. And also there were, if you focus on France, there was this group of kind of plucky young artists who were moving away from traditional subjects and wanting to get out there and paint life itself, modern life itself. In terms of describing the colours on their canvases, I mean, lots of the lots of the colours used by the Impressionists, so they they kind of, I talked about, breaking free from rules earlier, this was a moment at which suddenly snow white on a canvas was swirled up with purple and, you know, human flesh was dashed with green and critics thought it was madness. They, they, they didn't know, know what was going on and they didn't necessarily like it, but these artists were revolutionary and things got even crazier from there. So... Did colour become more important as figuration became more optional? Because, you know, the back half of your book is full of this sort of fascinating, very, very bold, very colourful, very impactful paintings by, you know, particular sort of abstract expressionists, the minimalists, and you're, mm. you're kind of suddenly seeing, and pop artists as well. So, I mean, pop artists, obviously, some figuration in there, but, but you know, there's a sort of sense that maybe is colour liberated by the idea that a painting no longer has to be, if you like, 
of something. Yes, I think so. I mean, you stand in front of a painting by Rothko and you feel like you're swimming in colour, don't you? You know, whether it's one of his really sombre paintings and the dark mauves and purples and maroons, or whether it's a really, really brilliant... So you said he was cheerier early in his career. Yeah, he was. He was, believe it or not. You said he was cheerier early in his career. You, know, you put a nice orange one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Which you can almost feel the heat coming off. And actually, he said something about wanting, wanting viewers to stand in front of it, I guess, facing away from it and to feel the heat on their backs. With abstract expressionism, this sort of came about, it was around the anxiety surrounding World War II and these artists totally broke free from tradition and they did unleash this entire new form of painting that required the engagement from a viewer in a different way and they worked with expressive brushstrokes and vibrant colours, or not always vibrant colours, but sometimes vibrant colours. I think, yeah, they did free it. And now thinking about colour today, whether, you know, because I think in the 21st century, we've seen a real resurgence in figurative art, especially recently. And I think what's happening now is that colour is as much about politics and culture as it as it is about description. So it's almost a tool for change and a corrective amongst certain artists, if you think about... Particularly artists of colour. Yes, it's particularly artists of colour. So you, lo- you look at Kara Walker and her incredible vast murals that place black figures against these seemingly whitewashed backdrops and you who else is there there's lisa bryce i don't know if you've seen these works in the flesh but they are incredible she does these beautiful intimate portraits of women in blue and they're and they're in this bright blue blur any easy reading along ethnic lines kerry james marshall is a is a kind of key figure to mention he paints black figures in these sort of scenes that could be traditional pastoral landscapes I don't know in a Rococo painting you'd see a well-to-do European aristocrat or a shepherdess um, (laughs) strolling through I wouldn't say that it's necessarily that colour is you know more important the the role of colour has just changed continually and I'm sure will continue to change as we move forward I mean speak of the kind of cultural politics of, of the book you've found very refreshingly there's really a lot of female artists in here you know more than one expects from a sort of if you like straight survey of the history of art quite often was that a kind of conscious thing active redress on your part or are female artists in history kind of more interesting in their use of culture than their male counterparts that was an active redress on my part so I was very very keen from the start to include you know a mix of styles and schools and overlooked and emerging artists as well as big names and particularly women artists and it's something that I that I try and do a lot in my um, journalistic work as well I'm always keen to speak to women artists but I think it's interesting to look at their work and and whether they've used colour differently so if we think of Beth Morisot in the Impressionist period There's a beautiful portrait that I've included of hers and it shows a woman sitting in front of 
this glass window, there's a garden behind and the woman is almost kind of being consumed by colour, which makes you think about the role of women and domesticity. And I mean, there are so many ways you could take that breeding, but I think, I think they offer something different. But yes, it was, it was definitely an active choice. Makes an interesting counterpart, maybe that one to the, the Vermeer you include, which mm. is a, a woman in a domestic role, you know, pouring from the milk jug. Yeah. And, you know, as you say, I think, you know, is she focused intently on her task? Was she really pissed off at having to pour out the milk? <laughs> exactly. And a bit bored. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a beautiful painting. And one that the colour, the amount of blue, going back to blue, was written into the contract because it was so expensive so um oh that's extraordinary yeah it shows how restricted artists were at the time she looks a bit like a ukrainian flag actually in that color scheme no she does <laughs> she does sort of there's a sort of blue and yellow thing going on now again it's a sort of absolute side issue but you know among the you know to, to me unknown pieces of work by women artists was what you say was the first unclothed female self-portrait and that was as recently mm. as 1906. Can that be right? I think that is. Women never painted themselves. Well, perhaps in private and they weren't shown, but this is the first known one we have, which is... Extraordinary. Yeah, it does sound mad. Was it a bit of a detonation, that one? Yeah, I think it was. And it's. Um, I think it's partly down to the fact that, you know, traditionally women weren't even allowed into the life drawing studio. So... It just wasn't expected that a woman would paint a nude, male or female. So it was incredibly revolutionary for a female artist to paint a female nude. And especially this one, I think the one you're talking about, it's um, Paula Modison Becker, is that right? I think that rings a bell. Which actually, she has a, a show coming up, or she's a part of a show, I should say, coming up at the Royal Academy in November, which sounds brilliant if anyone's looking for an exhibition to see later in the year. But yes, she, I think she really did pave the way for other women artists to create this kind of art. And again, now I've got it in front of me, there's something about her expression that it's not like she's daring the viewer or or looking at the viewer in a way that, you know, to suggest that she thinks she's doing something radical. She's just looking at the viewer as if to say, well, yes, I'm standing here. It's a nude and... It's a very level gaze, isn't it? Exactly, and why should it be so different? Just before I let you go, there's something that I don't think you mention in the book, but that has just sort of stuck in my head, and I'm wondering what you make of it. This attempt a few years back, I think Anish Kapoor, there is a black that is so black that it can only be made by a particular technology. I think it's some sort of nanoparticles. And Kapoor paid a small fortune to have exclusive rights to the technology or, or whatever it, it is that's copyrightable in that, so that there is a shade of black that only Anish Kapoor is allowed to use. I think I'm getting that story right. You are, and and it's following in the footsteps of Yves Klein, who patented his brilliant blue. It's called International, International Klein Blue, and... He worked with, he began making these kind of monochrome blue paintings in the late 1940s and a decade later collaborated with this Parisian paint supplier to create this particular shade. So yes, it's an interesting kind of strain of artists claiming a colour as their own. I'm not sure how I feel about it. 
that a, a colour should belong to an individual. And also, what I wonder what it says about those artists, the colours that they've chosen. I mean, with Eve Klein and the blue, it's sort of, I don't know, I think it was about freedom and luminosity and, you know, looking at it, you can see why that would be your choice, perhaps if creative freedom was something that you were searching for and aiming for. But yes, the colour black is a different choice. Well, it's a sort of none more black, sort of spinal tap shade. Yeah, that could have been a very interesting feature, Sam. I wish I had... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's just, it just seems... A, I wonder, do you think that when artists are doing that, that's in some respects a sort of way of introducing an artificial scarcity, maybe as an artistic gesture, that, that you know has been present through most of history and has shaped the way that colours are used and... By reasserting it, maybe it makes it puts a tennis net back up or something. I don't know. <laughs> yes, it might be. It might be. I think there's definitely something in that, and it's it's similar to artists choosing to go monochrome at a time when there are infinite options available of colours. I think there is something very thought provoking about it, and you know, artists are always wanting to do something different, wanting to. Um, pave their own path and that's one way of doing it is to yeah go down a seemingly narrow trajectory but something that I don't know is kind of radical at the same time well can I just end by asking you you don't have a favorite color do you have a a favorite use of color in a painting of all the 80 that you've gone through here is there one of them that absolutely snags on your mind Mm. it's such a hard question because there are a few but I would say that one of them is, there's a self-portrait by Alice Neal that I've included in the book, which is, she painted towards the end of her life in 1980. And it's a nude self-portrait. So following on from the, the one we discussed earlier. And it's kind of, it's made up of a real mix of very sombre and very vibrant colours. But one of the things I love about it is, so in one hand, she's she's clutching this, bright white rag that is sort of a shade brighter than her hair which is very fluffy and white itself and some critics have seen that rag and the way she's holding it as a sign of the artist surrendering to age and decline but then I I think you look at the fresh palette and the expressive brush strokes and she is so alive and kicking and I love that portrait for that reason I mean, the palette's incredible, but that, that tiny pocket, that little white rag, is um, one of my favourite parts of it. Listeners, check it out, either by going to the gallery or, better yet, by buying Chloe Ashby's new book. Chloe, thanks very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Sam. Mm-hmm.